Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of DataFem, a podcast meant to inspire diversity and innovation within the data science industry. I'm Danielle, founder of Dikayo Data, and I'm here with my friend and acclaimed statistical programmer, Leila Buzuba, to discuss the R community, cancer research, and how academia can fuel a data science career. I know we have a lot to talk about, but let's start out with you telling me about some of the projects you're working on. So basically, I, I kind of have two hats at uh, UM uh, Med School. Um, so I'm transitioning from primarily the Cancer Center, where I was, um, I played a really critical, and still do, play a really critical role um, in developing a web platform to map the, rate, the cancer burden like incidents, mortality, years of potential life loss due to cancer um, in association to uh, known risk behaviors and like um, social determinants of health. Um, so it's a, it's a really great platform. Um, it's online. Um, and my role is basically, it was basically like the main data scientist behind it. I, um, basically uh, extracted, well, acquired all the data that you see on the platform and, you know, pro processed it, cleaned it, calculated the rates, um, and then published it. So basically everything you see on the, on the site, and actually I, I can actually share this part, it's scan360.com. Um, and basically everything you see on the site is, um, the numbers are basically were computed by scripts that I wrote in R. Um, I we I didn't we don't have a team to develop the site like the front end, but we have a a contractor that we work with, and I basically work on the back end, the data for it. Um, but it's been a really great success. It's been really well received. It helped us win, uh, get awarded uh, NCI designation, and. Uh, being awarded um, designation status is a really prestigious award for a cancer center. And one of the biggest uh, accomplishments, I guess, that I can say that I'm proud of is that that our platform went in as part of that grant and it like really turned heads. It made the, the reviewers at the National Cancer Institute kind of um, almost create a national standard for cancer centers nationwide that they should do something similar. Um, so that's what I do at the cancer center. But lately, I've been working on uh, research revolving around substance abuse. Um, and as you know, we have like a really, uh, really terrible opioid crisis in America. And um, so right now, we are looking at different clinical trials and trying to do some predictive modeling um, on some national 
clinical trial data and what I do for that specifically is I'm, I'm working on building a shiny app um, to kind of harmonize drug names. So I've actually been learning a lot about drugs. It's been really cool. <laughs> so, um, but it's been fun kind of learning about drugs and really interesting to see kind of the, the crisis from a data perspective. It seems like you're on the forefront of kind of two really important areas. You know, you're on the forefront of, you know, health, like all of this health research. And then also data science is so new. So you're also on the forefront of that. Like you're developing things in R that people haven't done before, you know, but then you're also doing research that's cutting edge for health. So I think that's really cool. It's really how you apply your knowledge. So data science is a buzzword now. It's kind of always been around. Machine learning methodologies have been around for decades. And um, it's just kind of in the past five years, of kind of, data science has kind of been this buzzword now where it's really the process. There's an entire process. You have to be a, like to be a data scientist. You need to know how to acquire data. You need to know how to clean data. You need to know how to process data. You need to know how to analyze data. And you need to know how to communicate and visualize your data. So it's all of these steps and having the skill set to do all of those steps would consider you a data scientist. I spend most of my time just trying to get to data analysis, you know, that I think most people can relate to this. You spend 85% of your time just trying to make sure your data is not garbage. Um, you have to do a lot of checks to make sure quality is good. And once you see, okay, quality is decent, then you have to actually clean it to make it workable. And then that takes most of your time. And then you can finally run a couple lines of script at the very end, uh, I mean, a couple lines of code at the very end of your script to analyze it. I've started to understand why musicians have always been connected to coding fields. You know, like I was late to the game, but I mean, I noticed my mom, she's a concert pianist who went to Juilliard. And then when I went to Juilliard pre-college, my one of my best friends there also ended up as a coder. And I thought that was you know strange that that connection was so strong. But then I was late to the game when I started coding. I would just realize that hours would go by and I would be stuck on the same problem. But then when I figured it out, it was just like that eureka moment. And it's the same thing as when I'm playing cello and I can't get this run right. You know, like I just can't hit that note. And then you finally hit it after seven hours. And, it's, you know, it's like all that all that time doesn't matter, you know. So I think you have to really like the process and like you have to have that perfectionist attitude to really excel. So I think musicians may have a head start with that. Sure. I mean, it's like reading music is like language, you know, you have to, being a former pianist, I was just like, I can't, I don't think I can read music anymore. Oh, you probably can. Once a pianist, always a pianist. <laughs> oh, I miss it. I really do. I miss playing the piano. But, you know, it's one of those things that you don't practice, you kind of lose it, you know, like Python, for example, I, that was actually my first programming language. And then I got bounced around and now I primarily code in R and I, I can read an R script and I mean, the Python script and I can understand what is happening because they're very similar, they're both object oriented, but I can't you know, you're not going to sit me down in front of an editor and I'm going to be like, okay, I'm going to code some Python right now. No, that's not going to happen. 
I mean, I just, I, I feel like, you know, probably alienate some hardcore Pythoneers here, but I really prefer to do everything in R because there are less steps. Like I was doing an econometrics project using TensorFlow. So of course I had to download Anaconda and I started doing it in Python, you know, like downloading all the scripts in the prompt and, you know, checking for errors. And it just was so many steps. So then I figured out that if I just, you know, download Keras, like all of the all of the packages that I need into R, I can use like, you know, command lines in Python in R Studio. And it took me literally three steps to get my regression going. Three steps. And so like I wrote out the manual for my teacher on like what I was gonna talk about and what I was gonna say. And like my first draft was like this essay of Python commands, which isn't gonna work for students. And then my second one was just three lines. And, you know, all I had to do was have Anaconda installed. Like it wouldn't work if Anaconda wasn't installed, but once it was installed, I didn't have to do anything else in Python except for download a few packages in RStudio. So it's just, you know, people overlook R. Like I see a lot of comments about that on Twitter. Um, I'm just so entrenched in the R community that I don't feel like it's overlooked at all. But I guess from the outside, that's true. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I go to a lot of tech things, and I'm usually only, like, one of the only R people in the room. I went to, yeah, this summit in in Texas for the Women Techmaker Ambassadors. And um, there was one other R user. Two. Sorry, two other. I met the only two other women our programmers in the summit. Well, I bet y'all were thick as thieves. <laughs> the three musketeers. No, it was awesome just talking about our, I've so, I, like, we geeked out a little bit, you know, I'm not even gonna lie. Um, but, yeah, it's it usually happens, you know. And when I say I'm a programmer, people automatically, you know, you they think, like, Davis Snowden, hacky type things. And so... I was like, no, there's another side. You know, there are things for, um, like, statistical programming, data science. Which is what you do. You're a statistical programmer. That's at least, like, how you would define yourself. I am. That's, like, my official, unofficial job title. (laughs) Unofficial. You know, it's interesting because... What I really wanted to ask you, which is a question I've never really asked anyone before in this way, but I'm always talking about, you know, how academia can prepare people for data science when, you know, the rise of data science programs is just happening kind of right now. But I feel like, you know, there's you have such a strong research background. I know a lot of my friends in undergrad had a lot of research background. I didn't in a, I didn't have that strong a one, but you know, journalism isn't that far from research, I guess. Um, but I just want to know if you feel like you were prepared to go into your job from everything you did in research at school. Yeah, I've been at the University of Miami for a while because I did my master's there. And actually, my intention was to go on and get my PhD in applied epidemiology. And... Um, it just like, I don't know, that you plan your life and you realize that, you know, life doesn't really work in the way you plan it to. 
um, I got offered a job um, right after I graduated, still within the University of Miami. Um, I actually, it was my a professor who I TA'd for, for his statistical computing class, um, he, you know, made me aware of this job and I applied and I got hired. But I had no, like I had, you know, a couple years, not even a couple years, like about a year before starting grad school, I tried to teach myself R and I was like, oh, heck no, I'm not getting, like I started this online tutorial, like this, this course online. I was like, oh my God, I can't get this. This is garbage. And um, when I actually did my master's uh, program, we were programming in SAS. And I don't know if you're familiar with SAS, but it's procedural. Yeah. So, um, I mean, SAS is great. I got really good. That's what got me hired. I, I was a really great SAS programmer. Um, but at this point, I don't even know if I would consider that programming because it's really just a bunch of procs, which is great. It's, it's a great tool. But it's not, you know, it has its, it has its perks and it has its like flaws at the same time like it's really expensive for the license and you have to wait for you know SAS to you know develop some new proc or if there's a bug but then you you have really great help you know there I've had to reach out to their support and they've been really helpful and there's a lot a lot a lot of material for SAS out there that's good to know and I was in my job, you know, when I was primarily working for the cancer center, I was just like all SAS, 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 SAS. And then I was like, you know, I like this programming thing. Um, so I put off applying for uh, grad school again for PhD programs because I had done a lot of research because I really wanted to focus on epidemiology, but I really wanted it to be quantitative and applied. And a lot of them were very theoretical. And so, um, I, I, did, I took my, I retook my GRE and everything. I was like, okay. So I put it off for another year. And within that year, I like got thrown into R head first. This is how things just kind of happen. Uh, it was like not my intention. One day my boss was like, okay, we're going to start doing everything in R. So basically rewrite all that SAS code that you've been doing for the past year and redo it into R. Wow. And I had like no formal SAT, I mean, uh, R instruction. I, it was basically R, the R that I know is basically self-taught. Um, it's, which is the beauty of R because there is so much material out there and the community is so helpful that you can teach yourself. It's really hard. R, it has a really steep learning curve. Um, but once you get over the hump, it gets a little bit easier. That was Hadley Wickham's whole idea behind R for Data Science, his book. He starts with ggplot in the very first chapter because its whole concept is let them eat cake. You know, it's like you're going to start with the most delicious part and then work backwards. So back to your question, it was basically a head first um, diving into the deep end kind of moment. Uh, super intimidated. I really, really did not want to do I like I tried really hard and pushed against <laughs> switching over to R. But, you know, when you have uh, some SAS code that takes 
six to eight hours to run and then when you replicate it in R, it takes 30 minutes. That's a big difference. This is where the R community is, is in divide. You have people that still will refuse to accept the tidyverse and program purely in base. And then people like me that will do everything in the tidyverse and avoid base at all costs unless I really have to. Let's talk about you and the R community because you are so entrenched in that. You know, like you're, I don't even know, like you have a full-time job fighting cancer, you know, so to speak. And then on the side, you're like women tech makers ambassador and then Our Ladies Miami. And then you're putting on a women in tech conference in March. And then you're going to our studio con. And, you know, there, you have so many like, extracurriculars in a way, you know, and they all seem to center around R. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how does that add to your job? I mean, I guess, you know, since you've been at, you know, um, University of Miami for so long, maybe it's nice to get outside of that bubble. But like, how, how, how do you have the time, one, and two, you know, how, how does all this integrate together? Well, um, I may have an unhealthy addiction. Don't we? Uh, <laughs> I think I enjoy the high of being busy, oh, yeah. the adrenaline rush, because it's just like, because even my, uh, my co-organizers, um, they're like, you're a machine, Layla. Like, what, how do you find, they literally asked me the same question, like, how do you find the time to do all these extracurricular activities? And I'm like, because... Sometimes I feel like I have topic ADD and I have a really mm. short attention span um, for one thing. And so, like, I constantly have to be doing a gajillion things at well, once. Well, at least they're <laughs> all kind of in the same vein. Like, when I, when I do things, they're all so different from each other and can't be consolidated, you know. But, like, at least for you, they're all kind of – they must all complement each other. To some degree. But I feel like it's good to have variation – um, because those are, again, like those, I call those professional extracurriculars. So <laughs> they still fall under the umbrella of work sometimes. Um, because even though I thoroughly enjoy community, being out in the community, um, because like you said, it does get me out of my bubble of health, health mm-hmm. disparities, cancer research, substance abuse research. Um, cause I get to see other sides of data science and it's really great. And I get to network, but not network in the sense of trying to, um, gain a job or, you know, whatever. It's mainly finding my tribe in a sense, like mm-hmm, totally. finding people with similar interests, um, that we can talk about, like how talk professionally, like about professional topics um, and, uh, you know, still have fun at the same time. Like hair gel. We can talk about hair gel and wine yes, and then go right back to the tidyverse. Right <laughs> <laughs> For real. Like, honestly, so how did you and I meet? It was because you found me tweeting like a crazy yes. person at Data Science Salon. I did. Um, I was very happy with your engagement. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I feel like I have to kind of represent. So I got really involved with Our Ladies Miami. So the hat, probably the second hat that I wear is Our Ladies Miami. And this is in, in no particular order of importance. But aside from my professional hat, the hat that pays my bills, 
uh, I have my Our Ladies Miami organizer hat and I got really motivated to be involved with that from going to RStudioCon in January of this year. And I saw how um, tight Our Ladies from around the world uh, were. There's like a specific section just for Our Ladies. And the people that haven't ever met each other in person were just like, oh, hey, yeah, like, how was this, this, and this? And they only know each other from their online presence and just communicating, you know, just online. And uh, it was just a really great feeling, that's, that, that feeling of acceptance and belonging. And it's a whole, like, reason why our ladies kind of exist. And... Um, getting to meet Gabriella. It's just like, it wanted me to be like, what's going on with the Our Ladies in Miami? And so I looked it up and realized we did have a chapter here, but they were not as active as I felt like we could be. And so I just messaged the current organizers and they're a great, a pair of really awesome data scientists and each from different fields and super, super, super intelligent, um, super power women, like, uh, and I was just like, hey, you know, I really want to be a part of Our Ladies. And at that point, like, I never even attended a meetup. <laughs> and I, they were just like, yeah, sure. Welcome aboard. I was like, you guys are awesome. And from then, I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be as engaging in, in the community as possible. And that has wow. opened doors for further engagement in the community. Like, it was through Our Ladies Miami, I was mm-hmm. invited to become part of the Women Techmaker Ambassador Program, which is the next hat that I wear. And that is an initiative um, from Google. And they yes. basically have this ambassador program. So if you're a, a women in tech leader in your community, they, you can apply to be an ambassador and your mission or their mission or our mission, I should say, is um, basically to encourage and enable women, gender minorities, racial minorities, <laughs> um, underrepresented groups in general to um, pursue careers in tech and provide them with the space. Um, and tools and just be like a guide to get them where they want to be. Because a lot of times, you know, and I've experienced this firsthand, which is why I was really like uh, just in love by all the women that I got to hear speak at the Women Tech Maker Summit. Um, I felt that what they call um, imposter syndrome, where you go... I've gone to tech meetups in Miami and, you know, in Miami, I consider the tech culture to be very underground. Um, It's not a very large or well-known community. You have to literally find people, Um, but they Mm -hmm. exist and it's expanding and I love it, Um, which is why I'm like so dedicated to being part of the community, but I can get more, more about that later. But basically um, I've felt personally going to some of these meetups and being like, I feel like I don't really belong here. I don't really know much about the topic. I don't know anybody here. I don't feel like it's very inclusive. It's usually male dominated. And so the ambassador program 
aims to get ambassadors to collaborate with other organizations, tech organizations in the community to make it a space that is welcoming and inviting for underrepresented groups. So you know, and that's like the beauty of it, you know when you see a collaboration, Women Tech Makers and X, that there was effort involved to make that event uh, inviting for women in underrepresented groups. So you don't have to feel that intimidation and that imposter syndrome. What was your, what were you doing the other day? You know, like you were, you were head of an account. Was it the Our Ladies? Was it the We Are Our Ladies Twitter account that you're the head of? I was. I was curator last week for We Are Our Ladies. I loved following that. <laughs> it was honestly a great experience, but it was a little challenging. I'm not going to lie because you have to curate content. And my, con my laptop at my desk was always open to Twitter deck or tweet deck or whatever. Like I have Twitter on one screen mm -hmm. and then my our studio <laughs> screens. That is and a I, place to be, in my opinion. I love it because it's it <laughs> enabled me by always having TweetDeck open on one side. When I had a thought pop up, I'm gonna be like, you know what? I'm not gonna like spend hours and hours reading, scrolling through um, different forums for my answer. I'm gonna ask the Twitterverse. It, it was great. Like I, I got to post a lot of uh, what was going on in my head um, on the "We Are Our Ladies" under the "We Are Our Ladies" um, handle. And uh, my one of my last posts was expressing my love slash hate of being a team of one by not having to worry about merge conflicts because that was a conversation that. <laughs> It was a conversation that came up with my GDG organizers because they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Bob <laughs> did this and he doesn't read my, review my code and he pushes and then the merge conflict. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad I don't have to worry about this. It's literally, I create my own repo, push my own repo, repo continue to develop, continue to commit and push to my own repo. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I have this repo for myself and myself only. For me, I have an internal civil war going on all the time. So <laughs> I wish they would. I wish the I wish the pieces of myself would merge. Let's talk about the our upcoming our studio conference. I'm so excited. It's my first time, and so um, I guess I want to know. Like you have the conference bug, just like me. Like you're and you're actually producing conferences, which is amazing. It's like mother of dragons like material honestly um i don't know how you do it but can i like add that to my linkedin <laughs> yes what's the what are what are the main takeaways since you go to so many and you plan so many like how can like we nerds we data nerds benefit from being at conferences and away from our computers or phones as the case may be <laughs> i think you will be on both whether you want to or not. Mm -hmm. My main takeaways about these conferences is obviously make sure the content that the conference is revolved around is, is super relevant to you. Otherwise, it's a waste of your time and money. I'm fortunate to be in academia where they mm -hmm. encourage, um, mm -hmm. mostly, they encourage career development which 
involves going to conferences and usually it's sponsored by some grant funds or my boss will pay for it directly. So I'm fortunate in that sense. A lot of uh, people that work in industry, a lot of my colleagues um, don't really have that opportunity because they're more constrained by budget. Um, but our studio con is hands down my favorite mm -hmm. that conference I've ever been to. Um, just because I've, I've been to a lot and it's not all just data related. Like I've been to mm -hmm. cancer focused um, conferences. The last conference I went to was a cancer informatics. So there was a lot of talk on data science and machine learning, um, also very insightful. Um, but our studio con, hands down my favorite, uh, just because it was the most enriching and uh, also just, I don't know, the, the vibes were just so chill. You know, I mean, also being from academia, I'm used to going to more professional conferences and you got to dress up and, you know, I've done presentations <laughs> before and you have to be professional. But RCUCon is very laid back, you know, no judgment. It really feels like a safe space. People, our community, everyone is there and their attitudes that you perceive on the internet are actually real in real life, if not magnified. <laughs> um, like people are just so friendly. Like I didn't meet a single like less than amazing soul at our studio con. Twitter actually, uh, the reason why I said you're not going to separate yourself from your phone is because I use Twitter um, to kind of take notes. So I, yeah, it's like I will tweet so and so just presented a topic on blah de blah, and me too. Check them out, or I'll try and tag them, or um, whatever the package, if if it's R, like whatever package they have developed. Yeah, if my fingers aren't numb by the end of the conference, either I did something wrong, or the conference wasn't engaging enough. But people actually like your followers actually engage with you, and you engage with your followers, and you're so fluid in your conversations. Like I totally admire it like I need to be more like D so that's like you're actually like my inspiration oh so <laughs> I think in any field not necessarily like restricted to programming passion when you apply your passion to whatever field you choose to I think you inherently get it comes from a place of personal experience so for me personally um the reason why I haven't left academia and especially in the health setting was because I really wanted my work to be impactful and meaningful to the people I or as an institution aim to serve. It's really easy to get lost in the data. You know, when you work in industry and you, you know, you work in, I don't like in some department figuring out ways to uh, increase revenue. To me, I mean, there are people that love doing that. And actually, I graduated from undergrad with a, a major in industrial engineering. And, you know, I kind of had like a quarter life crisis where, you know, I was applying for jobs at the Home Depot, at UPS, at <laughs> Delta Airlines, and you know, as it's very stats heavy, it's a, a it's supply chain and it's logistics. 
then you got out of me heckling you for a buddy pass. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I love those perks. Yeah, it just it just wasn't hitting home. I actually took a year off, um, and I decided uh, just to kind of disconnect myself. And so my uh, background is Moroccan, and um, so I. I moved to Morocco, I told my parents, okay, you know what, I need to physically extract myself from this environment because it was kind of toxic. I didn't enjoy being at home at the time. and I didn't enjoy the job that I had. And uh, I moved to Morocco for only about seven months. Um, but I really wanted to connect um, with, you know, my culture, immerse myself in my culture, expand my language skills. In order to be successful um, or even to feel that sense of, I don't know, that sense of calling, that sense of purpose in your role to have a kind of personal connection. Um, and when you're working with cancer and you're working with registry data, you have to remember consistently that those are actual people. Those numbers you're seeing are actual people. And you can't be casual with how you interpret your, your results and your findings because it will mm -hmm. effectively impact someone's life. You know, people say that, you know, you are not your job, you are not your work. But for people like us who always want to be working, I mean, that's a way to give back. It really is, you know? It, it is. It's like I'm not getting paid to do any of these extra things that I do, but it's because I care deeply for the, the vision. It's rewarding and it's impactful because, you know, we as data scientists are a very niche community. It's so small, you know, like it's it's like all of us could fit in a room, a big room, but we could fit in a room, you know, um, and to think that everything any one of us does is growing the industry on a very intimate level. We start from the same point and then we infiltrate all industries. We live in such a data-driven society now. Data is liquid gold. Like data is the oil of today. And you are, that you're able, you have the ability to combine any passion with data and make it your own.